So as we're looking at uh, David's life again, today seems to be one of those uh, new beginning and new uh, outlook on the horizon. Because as you remember, Saul is dead. The enemy who has chased after David's life for more than 10 years is gone. And now David found out about the news. If you put yourself in David's shoes, remembering when you are teen years, some scholars will say maybe 15, 16-year-old shepherd boy, you remember being anointed by the prophet Samuel. And hearing these words, you shall become king of Israel. And then you just went through just a long stretches of suffering and persecution. Somebody's breathing on your neck in terms of seeking your life, literally. Hiding in cave hiding in desert, running away from rock to rock. Now that the monumental obstacle is gone, what's on your mind? Maybe I speak for almost all of you. It's time for me to be king. It's about time. For me to be finally king. But today's passage presents a very different picture. It's not automatic. It's, it's not instantaneous. And in that, we have so much to learn about our Christian life as well. So let's begin with this simple question. What does it take? For one to become king over Israel. The people of God. Number one, there are at least four. It takes a choice, a call of God as Lord's anointed servant. Israel's king was very different from the king of other nations. King of other nations. The final authority. He was the supreme and sovereign. But Israel's king was a means to God's end. God's glory and God's purpose. The true king of Israel was Yahweh himself. Then God makes his choice to be his vessel. To be his tool for the kingdom of God. In our New Testament days, the kingdom of God meant more reign of God, rule of God. But during this time, the kingdom of Israel was a type of kingdom of God. The prototype of that, although not perfect, and there is at least the eclipse of those kingdom of God being Israel itself. 
So let's look at two kings that we are going to read about, hear about. One is David, obviously. The other one is by the name of Ishbosheth. Ishibosheth was a fourth son of King Saul. We'll talk about that just in a bit. But in terms of choice, as I mentioned before, as a shepherd boy during teen years, David was already chosen, anointed with oil. But Ishibosheth was chosen only by man, by one man, kingmaker by the name of Abner. Number two, uh, this is where the reality meets with the spiritual principles as well. It takes a consensus of the people of Judah and Israel. Uh, Judah is one tribe, the rest of the northern part of the 11 tribes, and altogether people of God, Israelites, were 12 tribes coming out of uh, Egypt, were actually 12 sons of Jacob. But when it comes to chosen of God, this is the part that we feel like self-entitled. If God chose me, I am to be king. But in that, where God works in the people of Israel, if one is truly chosen, whether it's a prophet, whether it's a king, people embrace that. There is a consensus for that. For David, he had a consensus with only one tribe, tribe of Judah, from which he came Ishbosheth was, as a loyalty, as a tribe of Benjamin, after uh, King Saul, and then because of the tradition, he had a consensus by tradition, mainly because of King Saul's heritage, that he had a consensus by tradition from other 11 tribes. Thirdly, in order to become king, it takes a support from the elders and leaders of the 12 tribes. Um, <clears throat> even in our society, it's like the key doorkeepers need to say yay for this person, green light for this person, and Israelites are even more so because these elders were not necessarily positions or title, but they are the true leaders of their tribes. And David had only one tribe's elders support them and anointed them in this story. So today is the day that David finally becomes king, but he doesn't become king over all Israel but only in Judah, the house of Judah, which is the southern part. But 11 other tribes in northern part, because of Abner, Ishbosheth had a reluctant support from the elders 
of the other 11 tribes. Avnor was the commander of King Saul's army for years. So no one will stand up against Avnor's choice. But there is an ulterior motive, as you probably can guess already. So um, unlike other uh, message, it's a, a refreshing change today is we have only 11 verses to work with. And next Sunday, we will have two more chapters to work with. So let's enjoy this time at slow pace of going through this. Uh, <clears throat> before we go into the story itself, this is the part. The fourth part is one that we ought to pay attention to. In order to become king, it, not only we need a choice of God and consensus of the people, support from elders, but it also takes discernment for God's guidance in steps toward becoming king. This is where David is radically different. This is our, the wealth of valuable lessons that is so applicable in today's life, this coming week. For us, David sought out to be guided by God's patience, patiently, while Ishbosheth was made king instantaneously by Abner's military power. So let's begin with David's story about becoming king, verse one through seven. After this, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men, who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they, when they told David, it was the man of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messenger to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. We could take it for granted in the beginning of this chapter, David inquired, inquired of the Lord. This is not an afterthought. It's a forethought. What it is, is that when Ziklag, in Philistine land, he's 
place was in the, among the enemy's land. And he was living a double life. And King Achish of Gath, one of the Philistine king, still thinks that David belongs to under his command. And he came back to Ziklag, his town. The town was burnt, and his wives, their wives and children were taken as slaves. And the crisis happened. The men cried until they couldn't weep anymore because they out of, went out of the strength to cry. And at the end of that, they were blaming David. It's his fault. We're not supposed to move here. And they were murmuring about stoning their own captain. This is the lowest point of David so far. But what ended up happening, that became a spiritual wake of call. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And in Lord's guidance, happened. He's done this before. This habitual posture started... Um, 1 Samuel 25, when he was asked to save the city of Keala, one of the Judean city, was attacked by Philistine for the harvest time. And David asked the similar way, inquired of the Lord, shall I go fight this Philistine? Yes, you should go up. Will you give them to me? Yes, I will give them to you. So with that assurance, he went up and saved the city of Keala. And in, in the Ziklag also too, when not knowing who's, who uh, raided their town and their wives are taken and children are taken, what's going to happen? And then David inquired the Lord, shall I go? You should go. Will you give them back to me? Yes. He still doesn't know who in, raided the town. But he meets the Egyptian. And because of his guidance, God's guidance, he find out Amalekites actually raided not only Ziklag, but other towns as well, while he was gone, while he and his 600 men were gone to the battle. So they found the Amalekites, not only restored everything that they lost, wives and children, and they were actually able to just the wealth of plunders Philistine, I mean the Amalekites had from Ziklag and other Philistine towns. And today, he is reasoning. Now that our town is burnt and Saul's gone, maybe I should go up back to my town 
And he, two, two of his wives are from the Judean area, that Hebron area. Maybe I should go. Maybe he's analytically thinking this is the right thing to do. But before he does anything, using our language now, he prays first. He doesn't plan and pray. He doesn't act and pray. He prays. Shall I go up to any of these cities in Judah? Yes. And not only that, he's confirmed his discernment is affirmed by the Lord. He doesn't come up with his own plan. He's asking for specific guidance. To which town? Hebron. So with that, he's moving. He then acts and obeys and doing things accordingly. Um, if you remember uh, J.B.'s Gilead, the stories uh, we already studied, uh, these are the people, their valiant men took the courage to went into the Philistine land, and after King Saul and Jonathan, his brothers were dead, and they beheaded, beheaded them, and they hung their body as a prize, as a glory of Philistine army, United Army, basically. That was a shame. Javish Gilead, the young, uh, valiant man, took them down. When probably they had to go through much of trouble, not only traveling far, but going into Philistine enemy's land and taking the body off the wall, and they brought it, and they burned, basically criminate the body, purification, basically, from all the shame. And in order for them to, for Philistines to don't have any chance, won't have any chance to shame, bring shame to King Saul's family, they bury the bones. Why did they do that? If we rewind the tape, go all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 11, young Saul, when he was a young king, uh, tall, brave, and skillful warrior king. Find out Jabesh Gilead was in trouble when no one was helping him, helping them. Young Saul came and fought bravely and saved them. From that point on, Jabesh Gilead had no heroes but Saul. They're pro-Saul city. So what's going on in this story? We need to realize undercurrent, the emotional tension was Jabesh Gilead was, didn't, didn't give a rip to David becoming king. king. And not only that, they probably had this 
bad taste in, my, in, in their mouth. Well, what, is, what is David doing here? One might think that, oh, David's smart. He's being politically savvy here. And no, you, you could say that. But what he's doing is seems so genuine and purely motivated. His passion for God, his honor for the name of God, and Javis Gilead, as we mentioned about uh, David, was in deep, sorrowful grief for Saul's death. Not only as a, just a mere another person death, person dying, but the glory of Israel, the beauty of Israel in the name of God's people have taken down by the enemies. So here, what, king, uh, what David is doing as a king, he is becoming bigger than his own life. He becomes a shepherd of all people of Israel. Let me make a point. And I brought a map. I know it's a little tiny, right? It's from uh, ESV study Bible map. If you look at the, the gray part, it's Judah. Just one tribe. It's a small compared to 11 tribes of Israel. The Ishibosheth was the king there. And they made Mahanaim as their capital city. And David is in Hebron. If you look at Jabesh Gilead, it's way up there. And he is king over the house of Judah. And he has a no relation here. But and yet, David is prudent. David is not looking at his own centered, himself-centered worldview. He's looking at God-centered worldview. Now, let's look at Ishbosheth becoming king. Unlike David who became king by the guidance of the Lord, he becomes king by the will of a kingmaker. Verse 8. But Avner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and Ashrites, Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishibosheth, King Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Remember the beginning of this message? I asked the question, now that King Saul is that monumental obstacle's gone, what's in your mind? And my mind is, it's about time. 
Well, some scholars will say David was about 15 years old, shepherd boy, when he was ordained, and when he was uh, anointed by King, anointed by, by the prophet Samuel. And now he's 30 years old. It could be 15 years, 15 years of gap, waiting. Some other scholars will say maybe he's not 20 for sure, but it's probably about he's about 17, 18, 19. Even that is 10 plus years. Didn't we wait long enough? Another seven and a half years to become king of all Israel? What's really going on? And obviously, there are greed and sin and manipulation of a man, but and yet it is under the sovereign hand of God. Ishbosheth was Saul's fourth son. I don't know, and scholars don't know why he didn't go to the battle on Mount Gilboa. Remember, King Saul and Jonathan and two other sons were all killed in that. It almost sounded like a whole family was wiped out. Other than the sons from the king, concubine. Um, but his direct sons, for some reason, Ishiboshet was saved. Maybe because of this reason. In case something happens, we need to continue the legacy of our. Uh, royalty in this house. At any rate, Ishibosheth was a little more than, however, a figurehead, a puppet for Abner's greed for power. He was king in the front, but actual control of the nation, the whole 11 other tribes were under the Military power, therefore, became translated into political power of Abner. He was arrogant. And that's what power does to people. In the later chapters, uh, another story might be helpful. Abner actually takes one of the concubines of Saul. And on the surface, it's like uh, he, he's into this woman thing. No, it was symbolic. When you take a concubine from a former king, you assume similar level of power and authority. So obviously, Ishbosheth didn't like it at all. So he confronted him and said, How dare you, you, you would do this? And instead of, oh, I'm so sorry, he said, how dare you confront me? Who made you king? If I want, even right this moment, I could surrender you into the hands of David. So you could feel that everybody knows Avner is a true king without the title here. His greed. And, and, and this is the type of people were very dangerous, especially when you think about uh, God's church. When you think about in church setting, 
There are people who are not concerned about the kingdom of God, not what God's plan and purpose is for the church, but his or her own gain. False teachers and false prophets is definitely the one of those people. It will, it will ruin the church. In the similar way, Abner was ruining the nation of Israel. Okay, in, in light of all this, remember King uh, David became king of Judah, and now, through the years of preparation and hardship, how God has used these difficult times in cave and wilderness. He had these warriors, world-famous warriors. Not only one, a bunch of them. We, we will hear more about them in the coming stories in First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. List them as the valiant warriors of David. And they were the true instrument uh, to when they, when they, when, as David become king for all Israel, they go up to Jerusalem and because of these warriors, they were able to take back the Jeru Jerusalem. And they, from that point on, Jerusalem is called the city of God, David's fortress city. You know why, why, why that is? Jerusalem, just a, geographically, it's not very uphill. And then at the top of Jerusalem, there is no other end. So it's a cliff, basically. So in order for you, for any enemies to take back the Jerusalem, especially if they have walls, it's a fortress. It's no way. It takes a double amount of courage and a highly skilled people, warriors, to penetrate the defense. The reason why I'm sharing all this is this. David is sitting here doing nothing. He could have gone. Or he could even send assassin, one of his men, who, was, who would gladly take that kind of mission. There are some of them who were willing to die for David. Why don't we get rid of Ishibosheth? Why don't we get rid of Avner in, in the process? So we would not have this problem. But seven and a half years, David did nothing. And he was in peace. He was not restless. So from these two stories, let's draw some practical lessons. And as I said before in the beginning of the message, this 
lessons are so almost like handpicked for our Heavenly Father for our congregation in what we are going through. Here's a lesson number one. David prayed first to inquire of the Lord before he makes a major decision, seeking God's guidance in his step. David prayed first to inquire of the Lord before he makes a major decision, seeking God's guidance in his step. The verse 1 simply says it, but we know that in other psalms that David has written, for for instance, Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Not after me. Not after I plan everything and then ask God to affirm and bless my plan. David, he said, I have intentionally set the Lord before me because he is my, at my, hand, my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Let me, let me make this very clear. Most people, Christians, believers, pray, especially when we go through a tough time in crisis. So I, I have um, never found any person who's going through surgery, who is about to go through surgery, oh, you guys don't need to pray for me. Pray for my husband, pray for my wife, pray for my dad, pray for my mom. So praying, it seems uh, a right thing to do, and we all do it. Uh, There is a difference of praying, though. Sometimes we pray in order to say that we prayed. But what we are really relying on Our connection, even our zoning issue. It's easy to find some people who have all the answers. The Monday meeting, last Monday meeting, supposed to be the person. He's done work like this for 40 years. He, he has a record of 100% uh, getting success rate on obtaining conditional use permit for it. 15, 16 churches that they, he, did, he did. But finding out just all kinds of obstacle, his answer was, no can do. He will not take it. So I finally find out, oh, that's how he gets 100% success rate. <laughs> he doesn't take the rate, the case that he would not want. He's so well connected. He knows that uh, the government people. He was able to meet top people in the planning department that morning. That's why he canceled the meeting. Or if it's just uh, uh, like planning and 
and praying at the same time that you don't have a connection. Get this. We hate to admit this, but our default mode is we are going to do whatever think we think it's right. right. Whatever think it is best from our assessment. So prayer becomes a secondary or back burner or afterthought. For, for David, this was a forethought. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know it's best for us to stay put here and do anything legally, protect our rights, and there's a law for that. Or, like that expert consultant suggested, save your time and find somewhere else. If you're a big church, he said, it might be worthwhile, but it's going to drain you financially in so many different aspects. And I said, well, the, the uh, group of Christians who are trying to help us, there's no fee for that. So it gets confused, um, the messages, right? So we stop doing anything. No resolution whatsoever. We're waiting. And I hate not knowing what's going to happen. I hate not even having to report to you guys. We don't have an answer. What's our next step? I'll be honest with you. Uncertainty. But people of God, through this passage, what God is telling us is that we are actually in good place. Because that uncertainty will drive us to depend on the Lord by praying first, not just merely saying, oh, we prayed, or afterthought of praying, but we are going to, to pray even today. We need to pray. We need to rally the whole church to pray, to depend on. Yesterday morning during our uh, prayer meeting, 7 a.m. prayer meeting. Only a few handful of people came, and I said, uh, would you pray with me that I could effectively lead our congregation to have a sense of urgency to pray without guilt, putting on the guilt that you are not praying and you are not doing your part, or fear that we're going to get kicked out. These are, these are always the enemy, the evil one's lies. But to increase our faith and looking at sovereign God and, and declare our hope is in you, whatever happens, your favor is going to be on us in our journey. That's why we pray. Taking this to your personal lives, have you ever prayed for specific to which city? When you're praying for your kids, pray, planning for uh, college next year, 
And there are options. And then your discernment seems to be, oh, these four or five schools might be good. But praying first is, to which school should my son and should my daughter go? You have an option to live in this house, in that house, in this city, on that city. And to ask. And even among the job opportunity, business opportunity, the same way. What does it mean to pray first? The prayer is a forethought and we inquire of the Lord. We seek intentionally to be guided by God. One thing is certain in light of all these uncertainties. That God is our Father. He is sovereign. He is good. He is in control. That he watches over us. That should make us pray more, not pray less. So the key axiom once again, is to pray first, then do according to God's guidance. Number two lesson, David actively used a sound mind to discern his steps toward becoming king for all people of Judah and Israel. What I mean by sound mind is a new King James Version use the, the word sound mind, and other uh, modern translation will call it self-control. But I like this. Okay, let's read it this way. It's verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Proverbs 14, verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way. But the folly of the fools is deceiving. There are two common pitfalls in seeking God's guidance. One extreme is obviously self-reliance. My decision, my discernment, my, what I think is the best, before even I ask, before we even ask and rely on God's guidance, we do it and God ask God to bless it. But there is, a, however, another extreme and common pitfall we should avoid, which is, well, it's supposed to be rely on God. So we stop thinking, we stop assessing, we stop using critical thinking with a sound mind. I call it imprudent discernment. Asking for some kind of a superficial signs. It's a bad theology in some sense. Well, God, if you want me to buy this house, let the owner accept our offer. And that will be the sign. Oh, actually, we made up our mind that way. Sometimes God gives a sign. He's 
very clear. It's of God and from God. No one can deny it. But we make up all those things. God, if you want me to watch this uh, movie on Netflix, let it work in first click. <laughs> if it doesn't, I will take that as don't watch it. Sound mind. God uses our discernment, prudence, critical thinking in order for him to guide us. Do you do that? Like, you know, for example, when you are uh, discerning which job to take, there are new jobs available. The one job pays a lot, but you have to travel twice more. The half of the time that you have to be on traveling mode. And the other one pays little less, but you, get to tr tr you have to travel only once or twice a year. When you think about those things, the, before we, even we uh, come up with uh, this weird idea of uh, uh, God's going to give me whatever is the best, and we are already leaning toward to whatever we like in our head, in, in our mind. But if we honestly question the critical question through our men's group and women's group, ask, let them ask, how will that affect your Christian life? How will that affect your family life? How will that affect your personal walk with God? Will traveling, oh, you think it's, you could handle traveling. Yeah, I like traveling, that's fine. And my wife uh, needs more money so I could travel a lot, you know. And she will be fine as long as I bring more bread home. Really? And then some of the godly men and godly women will ask, is that your desire or is that the Lord's desire? Or on another one. Okay, here's a house in a nice suburb house. And here's a house uh, not so Worldly standard, South Orange County, safest town. There is a crime rate, and the school might not be that as good as these cities. And there are some things that we you should critically ask questions about. What does it mean to be salt and light? Am I afraid of just continually the worldly harm and I'm, I'm just going to try to overprotect my children, insulate them with Orange County affluence and comfort? Or am I willing to at least be open-minded about this? Those are sound mind principles. So we are to seek godly counsel, the wise counsel, and let them ask, let our brothers and sisters ask some tough questions. You know, strangers cannot ask our motives. 
But our brothers and our sisters who love us and who knows us enough cannot ask the motive. Can I ask you why that appeals to you so much? Because I get the corner office. I get the title that sounds so much better. Oh, thank you for being honest. That sounds vain, though. <laughs> How will that bring glory to God? Number three lesson, David waited on the Lord patiently for God's time and process, God's time and process of becoming king, unlike Ishibosheth, who took the shortcut by Abner. Verse 27, I mean, Psalm 27, another Psalm of David, verse 14, he turns to God's people and shares his encouragement. Wait for the Lord, verse 14. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord somehow give you courage. How was David able to wait so patiently for seven and a half years? Not to mention 15, 20 to 15 years up to that point. He knew how to wait on the Lord. Unlike Jacob, as I mentioned last week, who was trying to get his own blessings that was promised in his own time frame by manipulating and deceiving. He ended up learning the lesson hard. For many decades, he was manipulated and deceived by others and finally become a broken man. But David, this is why he's a man after God's own heart. He was not restless. He was in peace. He was clear-headed. And he waited. So do you see where we are right now? Where we are with all uncertainty? We don't even have a clear signs of each direction, either direction. This is a time to wait on the Lord. By waiting on the Lord, we're going to put our weight in the trusting in the Lord. In your life, what's frustrating to you? What monumental obstacle has moved, but there is no way that you are speeding up or progress is facilitated in a double anointing of God as you expected. Brothers and sisters, that's the time that you need to wait. In your impatience, you need to look to God. Show me, O Lord, whether my faith is real. But by the way, you know what the funny thing is? 
I'm just like you. Maybe some of you are much better than me. I'm one of those guys when I am in the middle of rush hour traffic. I have this fantasy that my car could fly. <laughs> that waiting. I don't have an option. I have to wait. It's not, oh, I'm going to wait. It's how to wait. But there are times that actually I give up, surrender to God and say, if I'm late, I'm late. I surrender the end of my time frame zone or the end of the, the outcome of the meeting to you. Then I could actually wait with peace, with rest. I close with this. J.I. Pecker, in his uh, famous book, uh, Knowing God, I remember some of our men's group, one of the men's group, were going through this book together. I hope that happens again and again. He has this gem of wisdom. Pecker writes, Wait on the Lord is a constant refrain in the Psalms. And it is a necessary word, for God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are. And it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need more for action in the present. Or guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing. But continue to wait on God. When action is needed, Light will come. So in your personal life, individual life, in our communal life as a church, let's wait on the Lord and waiting sharply and discerningly, the light will come. we will have testimonies of God's goodness and Lord's provision and Lord's favor. Would you pray first with me for our church? Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we are so grateful for this scripture guidance and in your sovereign plan this passage will fall on this Sunday that we are actually receiving the very exact word that we need to receive of our church's current status with the zoning issue with the, church, with the city. We don't know which direction to go whether we should use the Alupa law and to deal with city, maybe even a lawsuit, or we find another place to meet. Either way, 
we wait for you. We're open for your guidance because we truly believe that you have favor upon us. You have shown so much of fingerprints of your blessings upon past nine and a half years in the life of Crossway Church because we belong to you. The head of the church is you, Lord Jesus. And I pray for individual application that each one of us would continually learn to pray first and use sound mind actively and to wait on you. Make us people who have testimonies, current testimonies of Lord's goodness. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) 